0: This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Spencer Roberts, who is one of an extremely important and perhaps unappreciated group, an independent journalist, my favorite kind of people. Spencer writes articles, often long form articles about scientific topics that he finds important and interesting, including animals and the environment, and gets them placed in mainstream publications those publications might have not even known that they wanted these articles until they were actually written. That's the beauty of being a journalist. And the work he is doing is really so very important. I am always heartened when I hear about journalists like this or when I read about them or when I read their work because independent journalism is like maybe the only thing that could save the world, if anything can.
1: That's pretty strong. But yeah, I, you know, I kind of never knew that people did this. We've interviewed Marina Balatnikova, who started out doing that. Now she's working for Vox, but I wasn't really aware of how this worked. But it must be just really a lot of work. And, and you do all of the work on the article. And, and sometimes I think that you do the whole thing before you start to like try to sell it. And it's got to be a tough life. But as a result, so many things I think are. Getting written that that didn't used to get written, uh, you know, really really important stuff, and a lot of that is by is by Spencer. He's he really focuses on animal agriculture. He focuses on fish and you know marine animals, and really really important work. I love this interview,
0: and it just makes me think a lot of the work that sentient media does as well, because that is fostering a whole community of people who are independent journalists in this realm. And we've interviewed them as well. I agree. That's
1: one step up. I'm not sure it's up. But, you know, creating an organization that's made up of people
0: who who will be writing about these things, it's got to be a little easier than doing it all on your own. So before we get to that, there was a very tiny and kind of hilarious and awesome potential mistake that you made last week you wanted to chat about.
1: I, I did hear from one person who was who was flabbergasted that my mother's dog had lived till the age of 30. And this is what happens when you make me like improvise on a podcast. I like to have everything written down. Smokey did not live till she was 30. She is not in the Guinness Book of World Records. She lived till she was 20. So it's still very, very admirable age, I have to say. But yeah, not 30
0: we're referring to last week's episode of course.
1: Yeah. And that, um, Smokey was my Smokey was my mother's cocker spaniel. And she died when I was young. That's my excuse for not remembering more clearly how old she was. I was about 5 and and I was making the point that my mother took really really good care of her dogs, arguably better than she took of her daughters.
0: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is for another podcast entirely, but one that I would definitely tune into. So, speaking of podcasts, and you? We had a new episode of the Animal Law Podcast drop. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, this
1: is a case that everybody is talking about. My interview is with Vanessa Shakib, who uh, is with the small, dynamic law firm Advancing Law for Animals, and she is handling... the the goat case, which, you know, I can't imagine there's too many people listening who have not heard about it. This insane, completely insane case about what happened in California. It's rural California and a goat who was being raised by 4-H by this little girl. And they decided that they didn't want to send the goat to slaughter. Of course, the, the sheriff's office, police officers, Came and seized this goat. Drove 500 miles, while well, round trip, to to find the goat to, in a place where he had, he had been put, and then ate the goat, like cooked and ate the goat. Really, and and it became clear from my interview, it was there was a revenge aspect to it. They were mad about all the social media. Insane, completely insane case. It's very early days. I usually interview people on the Animal Law Podcast when a case is a little further along, so we get a little bit more depth. But I really wanted to get the story here. And I'm really glad I did, because there were really a lot of details about what happened here that were crazy. And I'm really glad I know them. We're going to be keeping an eye on this case, of course.
0: Yeah, this is I'm getting emails from people I haven't spoken with in like 100 years about this case. So it is definitely it has broken through something important. And I'm really, really glad that you were able to cover it.
1: Yeah. And Vanessa is terrific. And like I said, very tiny law firm. They're doing it like you know, without a huge amount of support, they're doing an amazing job. So I, I was really glad that she took the time yeah. to talk to us.
0: So I kidnapped you and we went to a movie last night. And it was Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which is a book I read in my childhood. I know that you did it because it wasn't written yet. It wasn't boycotting it. It wasn't written yet in my
1: childhood. Right.
0: And I had this like really strong desire to see it because of the fact that You know, there are a lot of similarities. Like, she was to suburban New Jersey, which is where I grew up. And the grandmother is very similar to my grandmother. And, you know, it's just... And also, we feel that way about childhood books that we read. I didn't like it that much, but... I didn't
1: like it that much either. And I think we're the only two people in the universe.
0: That and Dear Evan Hansen, which is about a privileged kid getting away with fraud. But that aside...
1: I didn't see De- Dear Evan Hansen, mostly because you told me I wouldn't like it.
0: The music is okay. Anyway, I digress. So the reason we wanted to bring this up is because, fascinatingly, in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, every time they were eating, they made the meat that they were eating look absolutely vile. Like, people in the theater were like, ugh. And it was like they did that on purpose. Did you you notice that? It was supposed to be hearkening back to an earlier
1: more innocent time, and so every meal was, you know, uh, like a good housekeeping kind of seal of approval with, you know, a roast. They were mostly roasts. There was a roast chicken. There was a pot roast. There were the roasts, roast, roast, and yeah. I mean, maybe it wasn't on purpose. Maybe they were just trying to make it look old school. But I think that there really was this this acknowledgement that that these meals were disgusting. Right, because they sure sure look disgusting. Of course, that could just be us, but who knows? They were doing it intentionally. There wasn't a lot about animals in this movie, and and we just both saw it, and it stuck with us. And and I wanted to talk about that. But the other thing that I
0: thought was well, re- let me wait, wait, wait. I want to hang on. I want to add something. It reminds me of this SNL re- recurring segment that is called Smokery Farms. It was on last season, and. Aidy Bryant was on it and Kate McKinnon. Yeah. And it was kind of, I know we talked about it when it came on, uh, but it's the same thing where the whole funny part of the sketch was how absolutely disgusting meat is and roasts and deli meat and things like that. So I love that. I love tying the dots or connecting them, connect them and tie them. There's a lot of dots to be gathered together in this and they're all leading to the fact that people think meat is gross. So there you go.
1: Yeah. I, and the other thing that I noticed that the only two things about animals that I noticed about the movie, one was that, and the other was the very weird reality. This wasn't about animals. It was about the lack of animals. Nobody had a pet. This was supposed to be suburban New Jersey in 1970. Didn't everybody have a dog or at least a cat? Like, well, I shouldn't say at least a cat. That's- Why did you say that? I think because people think it's easier to have a cat, not because they think cats are any less than dogs, but people think it's it's a, an easier kind of way to go. I mean, there was not not one companion animal mentioned in this whole uh, movie. Uh, you know, that wasn't why I didn't like it. And I wish we could get into why we weren't that thrilled. with. I didn't hate it. I just, I don't understand why it's the most popular movie. And it got like, every single review is a rave. Every single review. It's like,
0: eh. So I actually, I looked more closely into that and every single review by a patron is a rave. The movie critics were mixed. I
1: looked at the critics' reviews. I thought they were, uh, so maybe I'm wrong.
0: Well, in any case, if you want to keep talking about that with us, ping us on Mighty Networks. If you're not on Mighty Networks yet, that's join a good it. idea. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Off topic. Off topic. Except for lack of pets and disgusting meat. Totally. So let's talk about our guest today. I do want to mention one other thing about Spencer's work, because I noticed just before we were recording this that he had another article up. And this one he self-published, which I hope doesn't mean that he didn't find an outlet for it, but I'm not sure maybe he wanted to self-publish it, on Authorize.org. Uh, that's a, a new site, I think, that people are starting to use. And it's an alternative to that one, oh, what's the one where people write their own stuff? I think the Substack, yeah, it's an alternative to Substack. I just thought it was so interesting, such an interesting topic, and so scary and dangerous. And they're fighting back. You know, every time they fight back, it makes me crazy. But this is about the Amazon specifically, but this is not limited to the Amazon. And it's about this huge PR campaign that's going on Saving the Amazon, how cattle ranchers can halt deforestation, an Amazon case study. A different approach to cattle ranching. All of these articles are getting placed by some PR company, and he, of course, has gone all the facts exactly who the PR company is <laughs> where the money is coming from. He really goes deep into into issues, but they just like their point, basically their real point is that in order to save the Amazon, we have to start factory farming cattle more than we're doing. They have too much space and they have to be put in feedlots and that way we'll make more room in the Amazon. This is going to be the play. Like the more animals get get targeted for how much they're damaging the environment. If they're grazing at all, and they are, I guess, to some extent in the Amazon, the argument is going to be to, to confine them more and more and more. I mean, it's not even going to solve climate problem maybe it will could have something to do with limiting deforestation i don't know but even if it limits deforestation it's not going to solve the problem of all of the methane releases and everything else that's wrong with cattle raising and it's just on every front every time we have a few little uh successes and the the story about cattle being a big climate change problem has started to reach mainstream weekly but I don't mean every week. I mean, it's not strong, uh, the message that's getting out there, but it is starting to get out there. And, you know, they just, they just find new ways to fight back. I just hate them so much, but I'm really, really thrilled that once again, Spencer has really uncovered the facts in, in an enormously important situation.
0: So let's get to that. Spencer Roberts is a Colorado-based science writer, musician, ecologist, and engineer. As a science writer, he particularly focuses on animal agriculture and marine life and the climate crisis. His work can be found in Jacobin, The Intercept, Wired, and more. He will be joining Marianne right after this.
1: We are so pleased to share with you what is happening at Vermont Law and Graduate School's Animal Law Program. Delcy Winders, who, of course, has been on the podcast several times, is the director of the new Animal Law and Policy Institute there, and there are a number of exciting new developments and degree programs that are open to students and professionals. The school has a number of full-time faculty teaching animal law and policy courses, and over a dozen specialized classes residentially, online, and over the summer term, including Animal Ethics, the Science of Animal Law, Undercover Investigations of Animal Operations, and the Farmed Animal Advocacy Clinic. They are reviving animal rights jurisprudence and developing new courses, such as International Animal Law and Animal Law in Practice. Residential and online hybrid law students can concentrate in animal law, and this fall, Vermont Law and Graduate School will welcome its first class for the Master's in Animal Protection Policy, where students can learn practical skills, how to strategically advance animal protections, and how to launch a career in animal advocacy. You may visit their website at vermontlaw.edu animal animallaw to learn about the degree programs, scholarships, events, and summer courses, which are open to students at other schools or anyone who would like to audit a course to learn how to be an effective animal advocate while earning CLE credit. For anyone interested in pursuing a career path helping animals, feel free to reach out to Delcy Winders or Laura Ireland at Vermont Law and Graduate School to learn more. They would love to talk to you and offer their support. And they let us know there's even more programming on the horizon. So look forward to hearing more news soon. Welcome to our henhouse, House, Spencer. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. I really love the stuff you write about. You write about a lot of stuff that nobody else seems to be covering. And actually, before we get into that, into the substance of, of what you write about, I kind of like to ask you about how you do this, like about your career. You seem to write pretty in-depth pieces on issues that you seem to be very passionate about, and sometimes you uncover scandals that nobody seems to be covering, or you get at least some of them. I don't know whether you get all of them published, because I don't know about the ones you don't get published, but you get them published. So can you tell us how you pull all of that off?
2: A lot of patience, a lot of digging, following leads online. I've learned over the years to use freedom of information act requests and things like that. And that helps to get government documents. Obviously it's not always the government that's doing something bad. So it gets tricky there, but as you start paying attention and following certain industries and you search these patterns and sometimes things when they hit the media look a little bit sketchy to me and, and to people who are familiar with the industry that I'm covering, be it ranching, fishing, et cetera. And that's how you get a lead. And you basically follow it from there and you go where the evidence takes you.
1: Do you have an idea of whether you're going to get something published when you start out or do you do all of this research and put all this effort in and then hope that somebody will pick it up?
2: Yeah, so I'm a freelance writer, so I do everything and and hope that someone will pick it up no one wants it. I can always put it online on medium or something, but usually I have a good sense of what can be a successful pitch and end up as a story and maybe who would want it, but it definitely takes some tenacity. If there's any writers listening it can be uh tedious and it can be sometimes discouraging when you're, when you're pitching outlets. And especially when you're writing stories focused on animals and things like that, sometimes they don't, find them as newsworthy as some other topics. So you got to be persistent.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. We all we all know that. Yeah. How do you how do you decide what to focus on? I mean, do you do you start out by thinking what would a certain outlet be interested in or is it just like you see something and it pisses you off and that you decide to write about it? That's exactly
2: it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so when we asked you what you would like to focus on in this interview. You didn't say, well, I'd like to explain my career. You obviously wanted to talk about the substance. Sure. And you mentioned that marine life was your biggest passion, which I am very happy to talk about. We don't we don't talk about it enough. And so let's start there. Yeah. Why why marine life and and why is it your biggest passion? And your stories are such a deep dive, it it's hard for me to focus on a question. Can you just give us kind of an overview of your current view of what's going on in the oceans?
2: Sure. So let me start with the first question, why marine life? And well, it's most of the life on Earth, right? We're terrestrial animals, so it's easy for us to focus on what's going on topside and what we see, but really most of the life on Earth and the biggest ecosystems that sort of uphold the conditions that we need to survive in terms of our air, the temperature and everything that um, make up our environment are, are hugely influenced and upheld by marine ecosystems and the life that live in them. And also, I feel that marine life are just tragically overlooked in so many ways and discredited, whether it's fish or invertebrates or cetaceans even, meaning whales and dolphins. We just tend to kind of forget because, you know, there's some out of sight and often, unfortunately, out of mind. What's going on in the oceans is not a positive picture. There are a ton of threats to marine life. And we hear about a lot of them in media. We hear a lot about plastic pollution. We hear about oil spills. We hear about things like that. And we hear about sometimes offshore winds right that's a big thing right now and there's groups pushing uh, narratives you know that offshore wind is going to kill marine life, and it does you know there are threats posed by offshore wind but there are ways that we can build it better and more safely and with less noise pollution but the biggest threat to our oceans and the animals that live in those ecosystems is fishing and this is an issue that the media is very reticent to talk about. They feel like it is unpopular, and they also feel like when they cover phishing that they're pushing an agenda or something like that, and there is a ton of misinformation, and it has a lot of purchase in the academic community, unfortunately. And we can talk about that if you want, but it, it makes it very hard to cover these issues because a lot of the time people raising concerns and just telling the truth about how commercial fishing is impacting our oceans are discredited by people in the academic community and it becomes very difficult to filter the truth out of all the noise out of all the controversy
1: and i i do want to talk a little bit about the the role of the academic community but first i, I just wanted to like note that it, it's not that different from the situation on land. We talk about all sorts of crises and people are sympathetic about them. But when you start talking about food, right, <laughs> the enormous, enormous number of animals we all stuffed down our throats, or not all of us, but you know, most of us stuffed down yeah. our throats. Yeah, the conversation changes. But tell me a little bit about the role of the academic community, because I have noted this, I've never done a deep dive. I've never like focused on this, but I find the information out there to the extent I've seen it on what's okay and what's not okay. I mean, obviously I don't think any of it's okay, but you know, all of that information, unbelievably confusing.
2: Right. So you're right. Absolutely. With terrestrial matters, there's certainly a reticence to talk about food issues as well, but there still is, I think, a consensus in the scientific community that, and obviously there are people you know, from the industry and with their own cognitive dissonance essentially trying to break down that consensus. But there's a consensus that animal farming is a huge contributor to not just the climate crisis, but our ecological crisis broadly. With marine science, it's very difficult because there is a huge, there's a huge influence of what's called fishery science. It's essentially an approach to marine ecology from a business perspective. And this is a science that's sort of developed by the industry, and it's heavily funded by the industry. And this is where a ton of academics get their funding. And basically, the way that fisheries science works is, I would say, in the modern day, it's predicated on this concept of maximum sustainable yield. And that's this idea that We can find this sweet spot by exploiting fish populations or or, or squid or whatever uh, marine population it is. Basically, the theory is if we cut the population in half, then there's a balance between the number of individuals that can reproduce and the number of uh, environmental factors limiting that production, that they'll produce more each year and we can catch the maximum amount. That's the premise of sustainability, and fishing so when we talk about sustainable fishing that's the underlying mathematics and it's very sketchy it extracts everything except for this narrow conception of population dynamics it only looks at this at the population in question it ignores ecological factors and our estimates for populations of fish and other animals under the sea are questionable our methods are prone to error, essentially. And all, all of our government policy, it, whether it's at the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or at the U.N., are sort of based on these fishery science concepts where we're essentially treating marine life as resources rather than wildlife, which is a totally different framework for how we treat terrestrial wildlife. Mm-hmm. So essentially, the core of sustainable fishing, the unspoken goal is to have all the world's fish populations and insist that our marine ecosystems can be sustained in that state. And there is a ton of evidence and anecdotes showing that this is a very poor, catastrophic approach to regulating fishing.
1: Wow. That's that's crazy, because I I've never heard it expressed exactly like that before. And, you know, you tend to think, well, they're just not doing what they should be doing. But it's really that they've decided that what they should be doing is insane and is going to decimate populations, even if even if they do everything that they say they should do. Yeah I, 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 agree. Have, I have I summarized that correctly?
2: <laughs> I think so. I don't think that's. Um... I don't think that's overreach, and uh, it's not just us animal rights people who are saying this. There are many fishery scientists throughout history who have raised this objection to the maximum sustainable yield concept. Sidney Holt, one of my favorites, said something along the lines of, it is the worst idea in fishery science. It enthrones and institutionalizes greed, and so... There are people in marine science pushing back, but unfortunately, there's a ton of money elevating and amplifying those voices who are rationalizing this system.
1: Of course. Uh, Very recently, I mean, very recently, at at the moment that I'm talking to you, this high seas treaty Mm -hmm. was uh, agreed to at the UN. Uh, Can you share your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I hesitate to get too in the weeds because it's a, a little political. For me, and it's it's confusing for me. I, I know I have some uh, some acquaintances that I talked to online who were at the conference, and they have offered some you know some mixed takes. And I guess my general take is it's a UN treaty. Remember the Paris Agreement, right? We haven't stuck to that. We've laid the framework essentially. The high seas are. Basically, the way that marine law works is from 200 miles from the coast is what's called the exclusive economic zone of a country. And that's where you get to enforce your national laws. But outside of that boundary is what's called the high seas. And it's essentially lawless at this point. I mean, there is international maritime law, but It's incredibly difficult to enforce and track and everything. And that's a a huge issue in terms of where we see illegal fishing, where we see human trafficking, which is massive in the seafood industry. What the High Seas Treaty does is it lays out a framework for, among many other things, establishing marine protected areas in the high seas. So that is huge. That's never happened before. So there's a ton of potential to actually do something about these high seas fleets that are, you know, mass finning sharks that are catching whales in their tuna nets that are running squid jiggers and stuff right outside of the Galapagos Marine Reserve, for instance, and things like that. So uh, a lot of, things that people have been watching for a long time and wondering what can we do about this. Now we do have a legal framework for setting up protections. Whether it goes well and whether these protected areas can be established and enforced is still an open question. And uh, that's going to be a continuing legal and political battle that I don't know too much of the details. I mean, I don't think anybody really does at this point. So we're going to have to wait and see. But I'd say It's cautiously optimistic about it, but also not necessarily uh, (laughs) blasting the air horn at this point.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I we have we haven't fixed everything. Hopefully we've made a step. Sure. I'd like to talk about that disappearance of snow crab story. Cause yeah. that was really that was really an interesting story. And that gets a little bit more into the specifics of how crazy some of these numbers are. Can mm-hmm. you can you just give us like a, a quick glimpse of, of what was going on there and and what was so
0: crazy about it?
2: Yeah, so essentially what happened was this past year in twenty twenty-two the U.S. government shut down the snow crab season for the first time in history in the Bering Sea. And this is a huge deal, not just for people who care about crabs, but people who whose livelihoods are built on... There's a huge, you know, multi-billion dollar industry and tons of people whose jobs rely on this. So this got a lot of news, right? And essentially... It was communicated to the public through the regulators at NOAA and the Alaska Department of and Game. And they were telling the truth, but essentially they were saying, we don't really know what happened to the crabs. But they were telling the truth sort of within the framework of how they think about these issues. And w- essentially what happened was our models that we were using in the government were telling us that there was a decrease of about over 10 billion snow crabs in the Bering Sea within a matter of two years. And, you know, speculation started to swirl around what's going on. Obviously, climate is going to be a factor. And in the Bering Sea, it's been a a huge factor, especially in the years leading up to this crash where we saw the sea ice retreat massively. And what happens when the sea ice retreats is that the cold. It's what oceanographers call the cold pool. It's this briny water that gets almost freezing temperature where the crabs live and grow up as juveniles, sort of disappeared. And so the default explanation was something that we got from the government. We think it's related to the climate. And that's a good hypothesis, but there's some issues with it because we've seen the cold pool collapse before and the crabs did not disappear. And like I was saying earlier, when you follow NOAA and the fishing industry, you start to see these patterns where regulators, be it at the NOAA or at their uh, fisheries management councils, are you know very reticent to talk about the impact of fishing. But we've been heavily fishing these ecosystems in the Arctic for decades. We're dragging these huge trawls all over the place. So I just sort of put together the leads and the information on how fishing impacts, you know, could have played a role here. And I stumbled across all sorts of really interesting anecdotes and information that a lot of people hadn't covered. And I actually got in contact with a whistleblower, a crab biologist, who had studied king crabs in the nineties and had seen the king crab populations collapse in both the Bering Sea and The Gulf of Alaska, which is on the other side of the Aleutian Islands, there. And essentially, he had his career sort of ruined by these government regulators when he tried to talk about the impact of fishing and also the errors that he saw in our methods of estimating the crab populations. So, we had seen massive crab crashes before when the climate was more stable. And we've also seen populations of Cod collapse, uh, halibut, all across the ecosystem in the Bering Sea, we're seeing these huge crashes. These fishing seasons getting shut down, and the pattern of pointing to the climate all the time is starting to Mm -hmm. look a little suspect. Not just to marine conservationists and animal rights activists, but uh, fishermen as well are looking at this and they're saying it's not the climate. It's not just the climate. At least you know we have to look at uh, specifically the trawling uh, impacts, but also the quotas that the government's setting, you know, that the fishermen are following are based on not only this idea of maximum sustainable yield, but these very old and very myopic survey methods. And there's a lot of reasons to think that uh, we might have overestimated how many crabs were there in the first place. So if you want to get Deep into the details of that, you can check out my article in Nautilus. It's called Where have All the Snow Crabs Gone.
1: I think the thing that drove me so crazy about it is that I'm very always very open to climate panic. And when when some when somebody actually admits climate is having an impact here, <laughs> instead of trying to deny that, I'm ready to buy that. And now they're actually using climate as a cover or possibly using climate as a cover for the damage that overfishing is probably doing. That's it,
2: very it, common in seafood industry. Yeah. Yeah. And there's it's really uh... there's a conflict of interest there because there are programs set up to compensate fishermen for when these seasons get closed. But if the crash is determined to be a result of overfishing, then that compensation doesn't happen. So the government
0: Oh, wow. Exactly. And it's <laughs> it's not
2: just impugning their own regulation, you know, to, to say that fishing has caused this collapse or at least contributed to this collapse. And that's the thing is I'm not denying that climate has played a role. I think it, yeah. it definitely yeah. has. And when you read my article, you'll see what I'm talking about. But denying that fishing has played an impact is crazy. <laughs> but that's the thing yeah. is that government, the whole system is set up to deny that fact and sort of just truck forward and, and hopefully try to open the season again in a couple years and i'm yeah. not sure that and in that's... the
1: meantime protect the fishermen with with these kind of payouts mm-hmm. is that right
2: yeah it's complicated because uh, there's you know levels of complicity right where there there are people at the top making millions of dollars and things like that and then there are people in poverty who are you know uh, on these fishing boats and they are working really hard and they're you know just trying to get by and some of them don't even want to do these jobs you know and they would much rather transition to uh, a different career and there's actually a lot of support in some of these fishing communities for job diversification programs and things like that so um yeah we have to look at the economics and the complicity of it, it, it with some nuance, mm-hmm. but especially when you look at the top, I mean, these people are getting away with. You could yeah.
1: say. And well, that's, that's true of pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Now, none of my listeners probably are interested in substituting aquaculture for deep sea fishing, but can you just go into a little bit of why agriculture is definitely not a solution to all of yeah, these problems? Yeah, great
2: question. Great question. So similar to the way that we talk about sustainability in fishery science, there is a lot of sketchy pseudoscience around aquaculture and fish farming. And the narrative essentially goes that fish farming is allowing us to relieve pressure on wild capture of fish. And the data really show us that that's not the case. It's something like a fifth of all the fish caught today are now processed into oil or fish meal. And the vast majority of that is used for fish farming. So it's something like more than half of fish in the US, I believe now, do come from fish farms. So as large predatory fish, which we have traditionally and historically targeted, start to become more scarce, the smaller fish that they would prey on, industry is shifting toward those fish, which are still there. And they're saying, oh, well, it's more sustainable if we catch these fish, you know, and then turn them into essentially by feeding them to larger fish in these farms, these fish like salmon that people like to eat. There are so many impacts beyond. So first of all, it's not alleviating the pressure of wild capture fisheries, but it's exacerbating it, right? It's shifting the target to these smaller fish. And when you target the smaller fish, you need to use a smaller mesh net. So we're catching more what's called just like collateral deaths of other fish that are not the target species, and not just fish, but we're talking about turtles, dolphins, whales, et cetera. But the impacts of fish farming, the amount of water that it uses, especially on land, is incredible. It vectors diseases, which we have these fish confined in these small small areas. The parasites have a very easy time spreading through these populations and then those populations in these fish farms become concentrations for parasites which vector to wild populations. The fish in these farms and the species that are being farmed can escape. And you know. so we have Atlantic salmon out on the Pacific coast, and that's causing huge ecological problems for the Pacific salmon who are already in huge trouble. And the pollution is incredible in terms of We're basically just dumping nutrients from this processed fish oil, fish meal. Sometimes they're using uh, additives like soy and things like that, dumping things into the water. A huge proportion of it doesn't get eaten by the fish and sort of just settles at the bottom and, and that huge pulse of nutrients washing down the rivers into our oceans also causes issues with harmful algal blooms and things like that in the ocean. And we're seeing things like in Chile, which produces something like half of the world's farmed salmon, where we're seeing whales washing up on the shore in these huge red tides because they've basically just filled all the fjords with these salmon farms. And there are huge uh, movements of people on the ground from you know conservationists to animal rights activists to the native nations who live in these areas that are trying to stop these fish farms. And there's a whole other thing with krill. They're now shifting from Fish to Antarctic krill. So they're actually stealing food from blue whales to feed these fish farms. And we're starting to see malnourished blue whales washing up wow. on the shores. And we're seeing these fishing fleets targeting these concentrations of blue and fin whales in the Antarctic to steal their food. So it's absolutely not a sustainable solution to produce environmentally friendly seafood or anything like that.
1: Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. You know, we actually have frequently have trouble getting guests who are deeply knowledgeable about about specific wildlife issues the way you are about well, not just about marine life, but about other issues as well. Who who are also vegan, who also have like this big picture about animals. Can can you talk about a little bit that disconnect? Is is that getting better or is it still like just a nightmare? <laughs> I mean, we when we do have people to talk on about a wildlife issue like I'm fascinated by beavers. We had somebody on to talk about beavers who wrote a great book about beavers. I just don't go anywhere else. I just stick to beavers and I'm okay. But it just always troubles me. Why don't wildlife people see it as a big picture issue, especially when, you know, the things you're talking about, even if you don't care about individual animals or have, I don't even know what that means. But, but even if you don't, the, the environmental issues are so huge.
2: That's a good question. I think it's kind of like anything else where it's just a very hard topic for people to admit they were wrong about and admit, you know, that they've rationalized their whole life in terms of just the way we treat other animals. I do think it's getting better, especially as we see the consensus forming in terms of the environmental impacts of farming animals and increasingly, but more slowly, fishing and aquaculture. It's really difficult, but what I try to do a lot in my work is try to bridge that gap because I see the conservation movement and the animal rights movement, and it seems like, well, we're just natural allies, right? And there are so many ways that our interests and movements intersect. And if we could learn to build that coalition where we can, we I think it can get a lot more done politically and have a lot more impact. So I think part of it is on the animal rights community to reach out more and engage on these issues more. But obviously, I would love to see the conservation community do the same in terms of animal rights and animal cognition, just changing the way that we think about these animals. So it, it is a strange kind of disconnect. And I think part of it is just the way that popular media and social media silos us into echo chambers, if you will. And sometimes we find obscure differences to argue about. And, you know, sometimes those can be interesting philosophical conversations, but they're just terribly politically unproductive, I think. So I think what we should be doing is trying to find those places to build coalitions and building consensus there. And then we, you know, can sort of naturally bridge into those more difficult conversations. Once we establish sort of some trust, I guess, going back and forth and, and it goes both ways. So it's, it's tricky.
1: Yeah, it's really tricky. I, I feel like it's possible that it's better than it was mainly because of climate, like the impacts of animal agriculture and climate are sort of the kind of issue that, you know, conservationists can get behind without going into that individual animal thing, which there seems to be so much resistance to. But I totally agree with you. We're, we're, we're such tiny groups of people when you look at the world, uh, you know, like fighting the good fight and we just see the good fight a little differently. And we really can't afford it because there's, there's a lot of really bad people out there (laughs) on the other side. And then really a lot of people who just don't pay any attention to any of it at all. Yeah. So yeah, it's hugely important. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that, that you have talked about, and that's related to this, is like veganism as an individual practice, as opposed to veganism as a mass boycott. Right. And veganism as an individual practice, it's very easy for anyone who doesn't want to go there to just say, "Well, maybe it's maybe it, you know it's it's morally virtuous, but it's not going to accomplish anything." Right. Like when you look at the. At the enormity of animal agriculture, obviously one human cannot have any impact. So if you want to do your moral purity, that's fine. But, you know, I, I don't have time for that. But that is not how, uh, how you expressed it. But even as a mass boycott, obviously it's not all that massive. We're still a very small group of people. So how does it contribute to change? How, how do you see that? I've always kind of resisted using the word boycott here because I feel like a boycott is like something you do. Until you win, like I refuse to buy from that company until they change their practices, and then after they change their practices, okay, I'll go back to buying from them. But that's not exactly how we're talking about veganism. We're talking, you're talking about it as as a mass movement,
2: right? So I don't think of boycott that way. I think you can find something inherently immoral or inherently not worth participating in, or actively non-participating in and there's nothing that would you know change your mind about that so i've heard that before and i understand why you know that's a connotation that is associated with that word but it's hard to uh, express in other terms but what you're getting at and i think this is very important is this argument that you know boycotting animal products and i would actually argue that the movement is is very big when you think about not just vegans right? And obviously vegans, of which I am one, are taking this concept most seriously. But everything from vegetarianism to like meatless Mondays and all that stuff, while I think there's obvious philosophical inconsistencies and things like that, but they are applying this same principle where we're boycotting animal commodification in some way. So we have that in common and when you look at the whole world and some people do this simply because of just their means like because they uh can't afford meat but when you look at the whole world there's hundreds of millions of people who don't eat meat in some capacity right vegetarians across the whole world and there are religious motivations and there are political motivations but when we think about it as an individual i mean this is This idea of an individual lifestyle choice is absolutely a talking point designed to denigrate and discredit the collective act that is boycotting animal products. People use this argument against voting, right? I'm just one person voting. Why should I do it? Because you're not one person, because all of our votes added up make a difference. And there's obviously problems with believing that boycott alone or veganism alone is going to solve all of our problems. That's obviously not true. But to throw this tactic out or dismiss it out of hand is incredibly unwise because it's something that has a material economic impact that we can do every day. And when we all do it together as a collective act that impact compounds. So we do have power in terms of how we direct our wages in the economy. And so people will say things like, you should divest from banks that are financing fossil fuel infrastructure. And that's absolutely true. You should think about where you work, the place that you work, and you should try to find a job where you're not contributing. And this is not necessarily easy for everyone depending on their economic situation and where they live but should try to participate in the economy in ways that align with your values and all of these are forms of economic activism. but we don't really like to talk about that because under our capitalistic system the consumer is you know systematically disempowered so we feel powerless but regardless, we do have some agency in terms of how our money funnels through the economy and why shouldn't we use that to what capacity we can. And we need not just economic activism, we need electoral campaigns, we need all sorts of approaches, but it it has to be a part of the picture. And when you look at successful movements, protest movements throughout history, boycott is very commonly there. It's uh, almost always there in terms of like when you look at the civil rights movement and the Montgomery boycott, when you look at Cesar Chavez and the um, Delano Great boycott, when the public finally gets behind this issue, it participates in the protest. It has an impact that transcends just that direct economic factor and it becomes a social factor as well. And we simply have to have the public participating in making that connection to build solidarity with the people who are most directly affected. And of course, in the case of animal commodification, the animals, the other animals who are most directly affected by the industry. And I think that is a more viable pathway to social change.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's really central to one's individual identification as as who you're on the side of to actually not be eating who you're on the side of. And I, it occurred to me when you're talking that my somewhat persnickety definition of boycott can be overcome these days because I can say I'm boycotting meat until we can raise it without animals. I mean, there is sure. an until now, there is a point where one might be willing to eat meat. So I, I don't have to worry about my grammar, <laughs> particularly <laughs> using using the word boycott. You basically come from a left point of view. You write for left-oriented publications. So here's the question. What's the story regarding the animal movement and the American left? I mean, it's, it has been consistently been a disaster for as long as I can remember. Why have animals been ignored or actually even disparaged? And, and is that changing? Are you seeing changes?
2: I think it's the same reason that the issue is ignored in all aspects of society and we sort of touched on it earlier you have to admit that you were fooled you know yeah. to to really internalize that opposition against animal commodification industries i think a lot of people on principle do you know want factory farms to stop killing animals and polluting our water and air and all this but in terms of the interface where they are financing those operations every day and they have a choice not to, that becomes very difficult to make that connection because you, you have to admit that you were wrong, you know? So on the, I hesitate to use that term left. I don't I don't like to, describing politics as like a left-right thing because it sure. implies like a balance yeah. in the middle and I think that's crazy. <laughs> so um, in terms of like progressive groups to use, a you know, a, a super broad term. It's difficult. And I think the way that we sort of gain ground in those social circles is to make the connections to intersections with other movements and other social crises. And I don't think we should ever, you know, dismiss the animal cruelty. I think that's uh, central to the whole thing. But people know about that, right? And they've rationalized that, they've heard about it a lot. So I like to raise some of those other issues. And, you know, people know about the climate to a degree now, but a lot of people don't think about how their own river, they can't swim in it, right? The EPA deems most, more than half of the rivers in the United States as unswimmable, undrinkable. And the biggest contributor to that is animal farming and the air pollution, right, in terms of you know, we talk about greenhouse gas emissions all the time, but the particulate emissions that actually kill more people, that cause respiratory illnesses, more of those actually come from animal farming than from fossil fuel. So when we start to make these connections, and there's of course the human impacts too, and I think those are unfortunately overlooked in a lot of cases, even by the animal rights movement. It's really horrible what, we're putting people through in order to get these products on our plates, whether it's children cleaning slaughterhouses, whether it's prisoners being trucked in to these facilities where, you know, if they speak up about being abused in the workplace, they can get deported, whether it's people in South Asia who are kidnapped and enslaved on these fishing vessels. These are the issues we need to be also bringing to the forefront. And just connecting to the animal cruelty that people generally associate veganism and animal rights, and in, in terms of our movement, associate it with. I think we need to try to broaden that approach and argument, and maybe we can gain ground. And I do think we have, and we're slowly doing it in you know progressive circles. But I, I think that's the approach I try to take.
1: Yeah, I I mean I think that makes a lot of sense and I do think it is happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's a small movement with a big with a big job. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the problems I think is that I think you're totally right and I really like the way you put it about uh how you know, people would have to kind of say they were wrong all these years in order to change their mind, but if you bring in some new issues, issues that perhaps hadn't gotten the attention before. And I also think it it frequently not this isn't true for everybody and for most people in the animal rights movement or vegan it's probably not true but for a lot of people while they're still eating animals they just can't hear that story uh i don't you know it's it's the cognitive dissonance is just built in it's connected to the digestive system you know it's just like you can't hear it so uh, so I think that's part of what's going on Uh, the really some really insightful thoughts and you know almost giving one a little hope that there are avenues that haven't been explored not not to disparage you by saying you're being hopeful but (laughs) (laughs) such a fascinating conversation we could really uh, we could really I feel like we could talk for a really long time but unfortunately we can't. So for people who do want to get read some of those articles that I've been talking about, and there are more as well, or follow you, can you just uh, tell people where to find you?
2: Yeah, the best place to read everything I write is on Twitter. My tag is unpop science, unpop underscore science. I also have a link tree. If you don't have Twitter, linktree slash spencer.roberts, where you can check out some of my recent articles also building a website where i'll be running a newsletter and hopefully hosting some other people's newsletters and it's basically like a uh, Substack patreon alternative but it charges way less money from the writers and content creators so look out for that it's called authorize.org and yeah hope to see you there
1: excited to hear about that thanks so much for sharing that and for sharing all of your thoughts today
2: yeah thanks again for having me it's been great
0: change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. All right, guys,
1: anxieties are really rising. And my anxieties are rising as well because I just have a feeling that maybe this is the moment when the shit really hits the fan, as we used to say back in the day. All right, this is an article from the New York Post because I haven't seen this topic really covered on anything but relatively right wing publications, which the New York Post certainly is. New York Congresswoman Claudia Tenney demands FBI investigate threat posed by, quote, vegan extremists. It's a chess game and DXC has been winning uh, pretty, pretty big. And so, not surprising that the industry would make its next move, and they have chosen Representative Claudia Tenney, who represents an unbelievably gerrymandered district in uh, upstate and western New York, which you know carefully carves out every every city. <laughs> or, you know, the cities up here are small, but they still lean a lot more left than the, uh, the a lot more left than than the countryside. So she represents the countryside. She has called on FBI Director Christopher Wray to investigate alleged quote criminal activity being promoted unquote. Notice she doesn't say being committed, being promoted by a vegan activist group in upstate New York. She is alleging that DxE has been using New York to fundraise. Well, last time (laughs) that's that's not really a crime, okay? And to recruit people to quote actively disrupt farms in rural communities, in the Empire State and elsewhere." Well, yeah, emphasis on elsewhere. I actually don't know of anything that's been going on in uh, upstate New York by DXC. Maybe a little uh, DXC adjacent, because there's that case about the sanctuary, Asha Sanctuary in Western New York, which DXC has been advising them on uh, and involved in in the representation, but certainly it was not a DXC activity in any way whatsoever. And, you know, the thing is, is if they were involved in anything up here, we would know it because if there's one thing they're good at doing, it's publicizing every single thing they do. That's their theory of change. But, you know, not according to this lady. The threat of theft and trespassing posed by this vegan activist group is completely unacceptable. What threat? Can you quote it? Our local law enforcement agencies have responded swiftly to protect our farmers. Listen, nothing has happened. (laughs) So I don't know what they're responding to. Now it's time for federal authorities to do the same. And obviously what she's really going here for is, is, you know, bringing up once again the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which looms over all of these activities. And they really want the feds to be involved uh, and to scare everybody, scare the bejesus out of everybody. Though these DXC folks don't seem to scare easily. This is one of my favorite lines. She wrote that in the last year, farms in Niagara County have reported several instances of animal theft and trespassing activity. Well, really? Like, A, did that really happen? Uh, could you tell us exactly when? And B, do you have absolutely any reason whatsoever to believe that it has anything to do with DxE or with animal rights or anything? You think there's never theft and trespassing on farms? This article, which, as I mentioned, is in a right-wing publication, The New York Post, does actually get to the point of offering another perspective and quotes from DXC, which, you know, is good. They're, of course, at the end and not in the headline, So not too many people will get to them. But this is what they had to say. Animals are routinely castrated without painkillers, driven to insanity by intensive confinement and eviscerated alive on the slaughter line. Congresswoman Tenney would better serve her constituents by targeting this abuse rather than the growing movement for compassion. Nice quote. And I'm glad, I'm really glad it's in there. And the pictures that, you know, they've got aren't bad. Uh, not, it's not of animals, it's of protests. And one of them says, you know, justice for all animals seems like a reasonable, <laughs> a reasonable ask. But yeah, like these are all at the end. And the headline by this investigate threat posed by, quote, vegan extremists. They like to get that word vegan in there. They think it will align people uh, with them against us. Uh, And then, of course, the New York Post does cite a bunch of things that that DXC activists have done, all have to do with uh, disrupting sports games, which, you know, of course, has been a campaign the past year. And nothing, absolutely not one word about the recent um, acquittals in in cases that are actually the kind of cases that Tenney is trying to pretend is happening in New York, you know, completely analogous and two major acquittals. So, yeah, doubt this is the last we're going to be hearing about this. Things are heating up. All right. Another amazing, completely amazing story. You may have seen this because it's gotten some press. And it's from the, the Got Milk campaign. And this is a little article about it on Ag Daily. So they're in love with it. This is one Aubrey Plaza. And apparently she was in Parks and Recreation, which I never really watched. And now I'm glad, though I'm sure I'm not. I imagine it was a good show, but I don't like her. Not one little bit. She's doing this ad for for the Got Milk campaign, and it's a quote-unquote satire. And she's trying to talk about her new favorite product, wood milk. And she describes wood milk as the world's first and only milk made from wood. And she says, it started with a simple idea. I saw a tree and asked myself, can I drink this? And the article representing Ag Daily goes on to ask, as many of us can imagine, that's got to be how the origin of something like almond milk also came about. Ah, uh, Yeah, I don't know. It came about like thousands of years ago. So who knows? It's a traditional food in some cultures. They like to ignore that. Apparently, the video talks about how the trees are eco-friendly, artisanal free range. And then the article, in case you haven't figured it out yet, points out this is all a joke. Satire at its best from the Got Milk campaign. And they're so thrilled to see a celebrity. It's pretty cool to see someone of Plaza's stature, I never heard of her before, poke fun at the recurring ridiculousness of Hollywood. We absolutely love the ending. Only real milk is real. Well, you know, that's not true. It's all real. I just drank some and I swear it was really real. It was, what was it? Soy milk. It was soy milk. One of my favorites. I'm a traditionalist. But the other thing is, like, does it occur to them that the, the other things that actual plant-based milks are made of are edible and wood is not? Isn't that kind of a big difference? <laughs> idiots. Just idiots. All right, this is a hideous article. I'm just preparing you. It's from uh, Drovers, which, of course, is an industry site. Tough environments require tough cows. And this just, it's just a demonstration just the ugliness of this industry. All right, this is this is by Mark Johnson, and it's about an interview he did with James Henderson of Bradley Three Ranch. Bradley Three Ranch is apparently in Memphis, Texas. And, you know, Texas is being more hit by climate change and likely to be more and more hit by climate change than a lot of places. So they gotta be worried. So what they've decided is that they should just develop their cows more and more so that they can suffer more and more without falling to pieces. Because they have low rainfall and bad water and temperature extremes. These are all things obviously that are going to get bad. Toxic weeds, predators. So they want to have everybody raise cows who are, I'll just give you a taste of this, athletic and capable of covering a lot of ground to get forage and water. I.e. they're not going to be anywhere near food or water. They'll drink water that tastes bad, instead of, you know, of course getting them water that is healthy will survive in extreme temperatures, that means hair shedders, that they'll protect a calf during birth and after. Well, pretty much all cows will do that, to my knowledge. Maintain body condition in weather extremes. Cycle and breed in all conditions. This is exactly, they just want to breed and breed and breed animals to be able to suffer more and more and more. That's their whole idea. And they encourage producers to do the math and manage their beef operation like a business. As if they're not. And this is my favorite line. Hold cows accountable. That means if they don't really survive really well under under harsh conditions, kill them. And they have these very high standards. And in order for a cow to make the cut, i.e. not get killed, she is a 10-year-old who has ratioed 105 or better, which is, you know, that she can comply with all of these standards. On each calf weaned, each year she has been in production. Wow. A very high standard you know, obviously approving, uh, you know, let's just breed them so they can suffer more and more and more. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook where you can also leave a fabulous review and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Henhouse. House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone regardless of whether or not you're a Flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the Flock section, so do consider that when you're considering joining the Flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a Flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of mighty networks if you donate 250 dollars or more we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our henhouse brass pin so thank you so much to those of you who support us thank you to my co-host marianne sullivan to vicky beachler for her work in producing this podcast to composer michael herron for the music Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week.